Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors, to out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It is January 15th, 2021, and you're listening to episode 29. Today, we speak with Jacob Call and Terry Lazoff about creating Wheel Horse Whiskey. But first, stay tuned for this week's Whiskey Chronicles. With whiskey's resurgence, it's no surprise that many old brands have been or are being resurrected. Chickencock Whiskey, for instance, which we discussed with Greg Snyder in episode 14, is one of many revived whiskey labels. Other historic labels that have seen new life breathed into them include Bond and Lillard, Cream of Kentucky, Old Fashioned Cooper, The President's Choice, Kentucky Peerless, Kentucky Owl, and quite a few more. But it is not just pre-prohibition labels that are being re-entered into the market. Boarded up and even dilapidated distilleries are being reclaimed and returned to production as well. Examples include Castle and Key, formerly Old Taylor, James E. Pepper, T.W. Samuels, and Green River. In 2014, Will Arvin and Wes Murray bought the Old Taylor property, now Castle and Key, for just under $1 million. Restoring the distillery built in 1887 by Colonel Edmund Hayes Taylor has proven a far bigger project than the two expected. Since 1972, when whiskey production ceased, the grounds had been largely neglected. With hard work and perseverance, however, Arvin and Murray have accomplished what many thought impossible. Built in 1879 and closed and abandoned in 1958, the James E. Pepper Distillery's only use has been as a haunted house. Happily, in 2013, developers unveiled a plan to remake it as an entertainment center. Today, visitors will encounter a brewery, an ice creamery, a microdistillery, as well as the historic James E. Pepper Distillery. Ten minutes outside Bardstown, Kentucky, a new bourbon tourism stop is set to debut at the long-shuttered T.W. Samuels Distillery. Now called the Old Samuels Distillery, the visitor experience will feature tours, shopping, and overnight lodging in on-site cottages. In 1885, J.W. McCulloch began making whiskey in Owensboro, Kentucky, under the name Green River Distilling Company. In 1819, unfortunately, just two years before Prohibition, the distillery was struck by a devastating fire, a blow that proved fatal. While the property sat, changing hands several times over the next hundred years, nothing of note happened there. Until 2014, when Terracentia Corporation purchased the distillery, began renovations, and launched operations under the name O.Z. Tyler. In 2016, the distillery opened for production, and Jacob Call joined the team as master distiller. Shortly after the distillery's rebirth, Latitude Beverage Company, an independent bottler, partnered with it on a new rye whiskey, and a subsequent bourbon whiskey called Wheel Horse. Finally, in 2020, with the support of J.W. McCulloch's great-grandson, the O.Z. Tyler Distillery reverted to its original name, Green River Distilling Company. For links to more information on the whiskeys and distilleries we touched on in this segment, please visit our website for this episode's show notes. Up next, we speak with master distiller Jacob Call and Latitude Beverage Company Spirits Director Terry Laza about their collaboration on Wheel Horse Whiskey. Stay with us. Hey, do you like whiskey, food, and adventure? I do. Hi, I'm Carrie. I'm Philip. I'm Louise. I'm the chef. Chef Louise Leonard, as in our World of Wheezy segment host here on the podcast, and Whiskey, a Chef's Journey. That chef. 
That's right, the project that started this very podcast. The series stars our very own chef, Louise Leonard, winner of Emmy-winning The Taste on ABC. And explores and connects the worlds of whiskey and food, city by city, country by country. Would you like to see this spirited culinary adventure on a TV near you? Well, you can by helping us finish the pilot episode through our crowdfunding campaign. For more information, including behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and incentives. And to make a pledge, visit our website, whiskeyachefsjourney.com. Or search for our campaign, Whiskey A Chef's Journey, at gofundme.com. That's gofundme.com now. Well, I think it's a cheers to that. <laughs> Let's. Cheers. cheers. Welcome to this episode of Spirits of Whiskey. Today we are on a bonafide cross-continental call with Mr. Jacob Call, Master Distiller at Green River Distilling Company in Owensboro, Kentucky, and Mr. Terry Lazoff, VP Marketing and Spirits Director at Latitude Beverage in Boston. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Thanks for having us. Hello, hello. It's good to have you with us. Yes, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Welcome, guys. It's so great to have you. This is kind of a first for us. We haven't had the Master Distiller and the Bottling Company matchup, so this is very exciting for us. Mm-hmm. As we always start out with the show, we talk about our whiskey journeys. So I'm going to go, Terry, since you got on the line first, we'll start with you. <laughs> sure. Well, my whiskey journey is definitely going to be uh, very different than Jacob's, so this should be good. Yeah. <laughs> so when you were a young little lad, did you see yourself having this company as an adult or what was your career choice when you were a kid and how did you end up where you are? Yeah. Well, I don't know if I can go back to when I was a kid. I can't even remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. But sure. Where'd you grow up? Tell us where you grew I grew up in California, actually. Oh, really? Where? I grew up in the Bay Area, south of San Francisco Okay. and uh, went to school, uh, college in Colorado, in Boulder, Colorado, and became a big craft beer fan in the late 90s as the craft beer world was starting to come into itself. And then I got into the marketing and advertising agency business for about 15 years, where I worked a lot in the beer world, both with macro breweries and craft breweries. And um, it was really exciting to kind of see how the beer industry evolved over those years. But during that time, I just became hugely passionate about the entire world of beer, wine, and spirits and became a big time whiskey geek. And I started a blog, a drink blog, Drink Insider, in 2010, uh, so about 10 years ago, just to, you know, talk about my passions and, and mm-hmm. that kind of, you know, uh, snowballed uh, and, and turned into something I was doing a lot of and uh, drank a lot of great whiskeys. Yeah. Drink Insider. Yeah. Before all the podcasts came out. and it was You were a early, pioneer. Yeah. It was the early part of the whiskey blogosphere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. So I got a chance to taste a ton of whiskey that was just sent to me over the years and just became a, a big, big whiskey guy. And uh, when I moved over to Latitude Beverage five years ago, I was given an opportunity to start our spirits division. And two years ago, I was given the opportunity to do whatever the hell I wanted. And I said, you know what? I think it's time that we do a Kentucky rye. And that's kind of how the idea of Will Horse came about. And that was kind of completed my journey full circle into something I was hugely passionate about to something I wanted to do that I could actually do. Very cool. Jacob, what about you? When you were a wee little lad, what was your aspirations for a career? Yeah, well, I kind of grew up in the business. I'm a third generation distiller from Bardstown, Kentucky. My grandfather worked at Jim Beam. My dad worked at Jim Beam. And we moved to Florida. My dad took a job with uh, Florida distillers and in the 90s, and he created all the Cruzan rum 
products while he was there. And mm-hmm. Ended up going to work for my dad. Was a banker for a while before that. And, uh, you know, whiskey and, and bourbon is a lot more fun than banking. So uh, <laughs> yes, that's for sure. Got in the family business and ran a couple of distilleries there with my dad. And that company ended up getting sold. Being from Kentucky, you know, I always wanted to get to come back to Kentucky to get to make make bourbon. And um, we found the company that I joined at the time was Terra Ascension. They had found an old rundown shuttered distillery in Owensboro, and it had been vacant for about 25 years. It turns out it was the original Green River Distillery started in 1885. Oh, wow. And it was the the Medley Distillery is the name that, that most people knew it by. And mm-hmm. it shut down for 25 years. And it was kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity for me to, you know, get to come back. And I was really just hired to rebuild this historic distillery. Mm-hmm. PSPKY10, 10th oldest distillery in Kentucky. So, yeah, I have a bottle of Medley Brothers bourbon. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. Charles Medley's uh, stuff. Indeed. So where did the the name Wheelhorse come from? Well, the idea behind Wheelhorse that I had as, you know, a passionate whiskey guy was that I really wanted kind of a new go-to everyday rye and then bourbon. And it's very hard to create names these days. I don't know if any if you've tried. <laughs> but, <laughs> we have. Uh, we have. But we stumbled upon the name Wheelhorse and it stuck because it has a kind of a real working man ethic to it. You know, historically speaking, you know, the wheel horse was the horse that was closest to the carriage that did most of the work. Right. And it was also known as uh, an individual who did a, a lot of work and never asked for any praise for that work. So we, we kind of connected with this idea of this kind of working whiskey uh, that you could drink neat, you could uh, put it on the rocks, you could you know, put it in a cocktail, and it's a great price point, you know, 30 bucks that you can drink every day if you want. It is very accessible. Yes. Yes. On the pocketbook. It's not hard. It is. It's easy on the pocketbook. These price points are amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Especially for the quality. And we can get into that later, but what, you know, Jacob and team are doing at Green River is is really impressive and how they've brought this historic distillery back to life. And I Mm -hmm. feel really lucky that we found Jacob and and them when we did, because now I feel like, you know, Wheel Horse is part of this historic story that's that's now unfolding in its new generation. Mm -hmm. Now, Jacob, Jacob, you literally grew up playing on your grandfather's shop floor, correct? (laughs) Well, I did. Yeah. You know, uh, (laughs) he had a farm. Yeah. He had a farm and also in Bardstown. Uh So, okay. You know, I used to, I used to definitely hang out with my dad and my grandfather. And Mm -hmm. I told somebody the other day, growing up in this business is a little bit kind of like farming, you know, it's Mm -hmm. a lot of the tricks of the trade. They're kind of passed down from generation to generation. And Mm -hmm. that was always interesting to run ideas and bounce ideas off of. Sure. There's a lot of intergenerational wisdom involved in spirits making. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, so let's talk about the price point. How are you able to make it so low? Well, you know, I think my company, we, uh, our whole kind of vision with spirits brands and wine brands is to find great producers that we can work with like Owensboro Distilling and Green River and bring those products to market as, as best a price as we can. So it's just what our goal was and we were able to do it, you know, working with the team at, at Green River. 
So if you didn't know the price point of these whiskeys and you tried them blind, I think you'd immediately think they were more than that. And especially just knowing the history of this distillery and how they're making, you know, whiskey. These are sour mash whiskeys. They're all made the real way, the hard way. They're aged in, uh, I mean, Jacob, you can kind of speak to all of the stuff that you guys do to make these great whiskeys. But I love the fact that they're aged in rickhouses that have been on the property for decades and decades, 50 to 70 years and get in the Kentucky winters and summers. And, you know, they, they just, they're just terrific, uh, you know, whiskeys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You know, I'm glad you uh, kind of mentioned that the wheel horse is made the hard way because, you know, we don't take any shortcuts here. One thing that we did is, you know, it, it might cost a little bit more to make bourbon and rye the way that we do. We use high quality ingredients. We buy only local Kentucky corn direct from the farmer here in Kentucky. But, you know, we're also big enough. Uh, We're actually the fourth largest independent bourbon distillery in the world. So we're big enough that we've got enough scale to be able to compete with a lot of these other major distilleries. Mm. You do a lot of private label distilling, correct? We do. So you you produce a great deal of product for other brands or that that is sold under other brands. Mm -hmm. We do. And, you know, it's been great to work with somebody like Terry, you know, with Latitude and and Wheel Horse. This was really one of our sort of our first uh, big releases of of a brand for a private private brand customer that we've done out of our facility. So Mm -hmm. it's been a great relationship so far. And and we're just excited to continue to to see the brands uh, get to grow. Yeah. yeah. So how did you two meet and decide to collaborate on this project? Well, you know, I was sourcing in whiskey is is an independent bottling is obviously not something that's new. It's been going on in the the scotch uh, industry for mm-hmm. for a long time and it's becoming more common in American whiskey as well. So, you know, we don't have the resources nor the, you know, the distillery to make our own whiskeys, so that wasn't an option for us and you know, I looked around and tasted uh, a number of different whiskey samples when I was first looking into a possible partner for Wilhorse and you know there are some common avenues that a lot of whiskey brands go to and have gone to in the past 10 years uh, you know I'll name one is MGP at Indiana you see mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. for rye which is uh, what we first wanted to do as a as a rye whiskey um, so obviously I, I tried their stuff but I wanted something that was new that was unique that was authentic that was ideally Kentucky and just I think by luck I was introduced to the folks at Green River and tried their whiskeys and I I actually think they were a little surprised because I think, Jacob, you guys are making probably, what, 98% bourbon and a very small percentage of rye? Well, we were at the time. You know, we've, we've certainly increased our rye production uh, really, you know, based a lot on conversations with you. You know, we've yeah. been just uh, a lot of high, uh, high marks on our rye and a lot of positive feedback. So, you know, we've actually increased some of our rye production you know, really because of wheel horse. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think maybe they were scratching their heads when I came asking a <laughs> Kentucky bourbon distillery uh, if I could uh, taste their rye, but man, I tasted <laughs> it and I loved it. And yeah, it's just, yeah. So I, I got lucky. I got lucky. Normally the way this has been working of late with brands is the bourbon comes first, then comes the rye. Yes. You reversed that. I did. And there was, there was a few reasons I went with rye first. First of all, I'm a huge rye drinker. I love rye and I wanted to do a rye. No arguments here. <laughs> no, it's, I, I'm a, I like rye. I, yeah. <laughs> but the second reason is the rye shelf is you know way less crowded than the bourbon shelf. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I felt like there was a real opportunity 
from a rye drinker's perspective for a really terrific $30 rye on the market. I mean, there's a couple of them and there's been a few more introduced in the last year or two, like Old Forester put one out, uh-huh. but there's not a ton of really good ryes at this price point. So I felt like it was the way to get going and create a name for Wheel Horse. And we've got a lot of great, you know, as Jacob said, a lot of awards and uh, recognition for the rye over the past year. We only launched this a year ago. Mm-hmm. And then the obvious follow-up was the bourbon. We were always going to do a bourbon, but uh, we wanted to come in with that second. Sure, sure. Word about transparency. I'd like to look back at that subject for just a moment. Over the course of this podcast, our many episodes, uh, we have talked with a number of makers, a number Mm -hmm. of bottlers, and transparency is the key word. You say, in Scotland, this has been a tradition for centuries. But in Scotland, there's long been transparency. You know Mm -hmm. who's bottling what. In the U.S., there's long been independent bottling as well. But transparency has only recently come to be expected. There were a number of things I wanted to do when I launched Will Horse. One was I wanted to launch a higher proof product. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, I wanted to launch a product that was non-chill filtered. So between high proof and non-chill filter, we could really bring a full flavored product to market. But three is that I wanted to be completely transparent about who we were getting our whiskey from and sourcing it from, and maybe even go further than that and create a partnership with them, which is what we did. They they have a, a you know stake in Wheelhorse because I was around and I was heavily into the whiskey scene. You know when things started backfiring on folks like Whistlepig and Templeton, Templeton for sure. Uh, yeah, Templeton. <laughs> yeah, it kind of started around then, and people were like, "Wait a second, you know what's going on here." And I think now, you know, whiskey drinkers want to know where is their whiskey coming from? And we have nothing to hide. We're proud of the fact that we are, you know, working with Jacob and team to make Wheel Horse. And it is a collaborative process, which is something I really enjoy. You know, obviously they're making the whiskey, but I've, I've worked with Jacob closely to do different batches and get to profiles and age ranges that we feel like really kind of hit the profile we're going for for these whiskeys. So I am all about transparency and making sure everything is on the table. Mm -hmm. So do you guys plan to have another expression come out or just the two? You know, Wheel Horse Bourbon and Wheel Horse Rye, 101 proof on both of them. Those are our flagships. That's what we want to grow in the coming years. But Green River is young. You know, Jacob, you guys started putting down barrels in 2016, right? So so the oldest whiskeys they have are like four years-ish, which means that there is so much opportunity in the years to come as we continue working with them on Wheelhorse to age further and you know maybe do like a, a four or five year age statement whiskey down mm-hmm. the road or maybe mm-hmm. experiment with some cask finishes but mm-hmm. I think we'll we'll definitely look to launch a single barrel program nice hopefully end of next year where we can start showcasing these ryes and bourbons in their natural state at barrel proof for specific stores. Mm -hmm. They're already pretty hot, although neither drinks like it. They go down very smoothly. Are you maybe looking at some barrel strength releases? I think we would. I mean, I personally like to drink around 100 proof in that like 95 to 100-ish proof. Mm -hmm. And I think with these particular whiskeys, the 101 is really easy. Like you can sip this neat, no problem, but it can also stand up to, you know, ice cube. I think for our standard releases, I like that proof point because you don't have to water it down or put an ice cube in it, but you can. I think for the single barrel releases or maybe some age statement releases down the road, we would maybe consider some barrel proof stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think 
Jacob, correct me if I'm wrong, but typically we would be looking at like 116 to 120 proof range for some of the barrels we work with. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 116, 118, something like that. And, you know, you guys were talking about that price point, you know, at 101 proof, that's a great value too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because they're getting here on the taxes as well. Absolutely. So the fact that you can maintain that price point, and I'll tell you, when these arrived a week to two weeks ago, I tasted both right away and I didn't know the price point. We hadn't done the research yet. Right. And I, when I saw the price point, amazed is not too strong a word. <laughs> yeah. That seems to be a reaction. I'm not saying you should ask for more. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I'm saying, yeah. I'm saying it's a really strong price point. Yeah. I didn't know the price point until today. So, and I tasted these the other night because I had to get some samples ready to bring over to Louise. And so every time I crack them open for her, I usually take a little sip and I was like, ooh, these are really good. And I was like, gosh, I wonder how much these are. I'd also say that even though these whiskeys are, they're a little bit young in comparison to some older whiskeys that are out there on the market, but you don't taste that youth in these whiskeys at all. And they're mostly blends of, I would say, two and a half up to almost four years old in, in most cases, depending on the batch. And I, I'm i amazed that you don't really get any of that green youthfulness that you can get sometimes out of younger whiskeys. And they, they just show really well. Yeah. So Jacob, how do you experiment with recipes and whatnot? Like, when do you decide, you know? Well, you know, we've got probably over 20 different uh, recipes that we do. Wow. We do everything from, from weeded bourbons to, to high rye, high corn bourbons. But you know, the, the mash bill uh, recipe for this particular bourbon is 70% corn, 21 rye, and nine malted barley. Hmm. I guess you're okay with releasing that, Terry. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. It's, well, it's in the press release, so. <laughs> oh, and it's I mean, on the bottle. Like wow. Yeah. Is it? That's oh, uh, yeah. So, yeah, you know, all about transparency, like Terry was saying. So, yeah, it's right there. You know, and that's a little bit high on the rye content side. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, uh, some of those heritage type legacy brands would be around 13, 14% rye. So, Mm -hmm. a little bit higher on the rye content, uh, which gives a little more flavor, I think. And then the rye whiskey is a 95% rye whiskey. So, it's a Mm -hmm. full on, full bodied rye whiskey. So, Mm -hmm. and the five is malted. Yeah, malted, malted barley. Mm-hmm. Okay. That kind of surprised me because I was expecting with the 95% that it would be hotter, especially since it's a 101 proof. I, it, it was Likewise. Kinda, yeah. How did you manage that? <laughs> when I tasted it, it was, I said, oh, this must be a high corn rye. And then I looked more closely and saw 95.5 and I was like, what Carrie asked, how'd you achieve that? <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a lot of tricks to the trade. You know, we've got a great distillation system, a lot of copper in our system that really contributes to that smooth flavor. We use uh, number four char barrels. And, uh, you know, we've got some really great rick houses here where we age our barrels. So it's a combination of a lot of things. The yeast strains that we use in our fermentation, uh, we've got a couple different proprietary strains that we use for each product. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, it's a combination of, of things. And you use the sour mash method in both. We do, yeah. Can you tell us about your reason for adopting that? Well, you know, we put a little bit back from each distillation back in our cook. And, you know, it just kind of jumpstarts the yeast. It gives them a little bit more nutrient, a little bit of the unfermentable sugars that were left over to kind of kickstart your yeast. So I always think of sourdough bread every time I hear about that method because that's what they do with the mother dough. Yeah, And I think of Solera Sherry. Yeah. I mean, it is its own method, but it has something in common with both of those. 
That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't know about you all, but all this talk about the whiskeys, I'm ready to <laughs> taste <laughs> ready so to we taste. can get back into some more flavor profiles. Which do you guys Where want shall us- we start, yeah. gentlemen? I personally would start with the bourbon first. It's the newest release. And also, I think uh, it's a little bit lighter on the palate than the rye. So it's maybe a little easier to go with the bourbon first. Okay, here we go. All the bottles are popping. All right. You know, while you guys are pouring your whiskeys, one other interesting thing about the Green River Distillery is its location. It's on the banks of the Ohio River far west in Kentucky. And if you look at the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, you know, everything is kind of centered around Louisville and Bardstown in that area. And you have to, Jacob, I don't know how long it takes to get from Louisville to Owensboro, but you got to want to go out to Owensboro. It's it's uniquely out there. <laughs> We're about two hours from Louisville in that. Oh, wow. And we consider ourselves the gateway from the west. Nice. A heritage member of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. So uh, I'm actually on the board of the Kentucky Distillers Association. Oh, fantastic. Speaking of legacy, you hold Kentucky Distilling License number 10, correct? We do, yeah. We're the wow. registered distillery in Kentucky. So I didn't think you were that old, mister. <laughs> <laughs> well, he doesn't personally hold <laughs> Jacob drove down to the place to get it in 1890 to get that 10th permit. Well, you know, this must be the, uh, they say it's the water of life when they talk about whiskey, right? So this must be the <laughs> water of long life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Speaking of water, what is your source? Not the Ohio River, I don't imagine. So we do have some of that famous Kentucky limestone uh, water here. Mm-hmm. And we've got our own wells here on site, deep water wells that mm-hmm. we use, uh, mm-hmm. down into that famous uh, Kentucky aquifer. So Nice. Well, I'm smelling it. And I get, I want to say I get a butterscotch, which I don't normally get in bourbon. I'm smelling the same thing. It's delightful. Yeah. And on the palate, there was a lot of spice. And in fact, again, these two releases are kind of switched, kind of reversed. The bourbon has a lot of spice and don't want to spoil it for everyone on the rye, but you know, there's a lot of sweetness in the rye. So yeah, you know what I kind of get from these? I get a little bit of almost maple syrup, pecan, some yep. toasted oak, mm-hmm. a little bit of cherries. And it does have some some of that spicy characteristics, too, that uh, that you'll find with that higher rye content in the mash bill. Mm-hmm. I really like the balance on both of these whiskeys where, Philip, you mentioned with the rye, you get a little more of that sweetness, which is true. We'll get to that. And with the bourbon, you get a little of the rye spice. And I think the the spice and sweet combination really balances itself nicely in both of these. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you you get both of those components, which I personally really love. Yeah, I'm really digging this bourbon. (laughs) I'm usually more of a rye person, but I think your bourbon can sway me. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think truly, I mean, Terry and I are pretty discriminating when it comes to whiskey. And if you had put this in front of me, I can't speak for Carrie, in front of me and said, here, here's my rye. Try my rye. I would not have said this is not a rye. Yeah. For what that's worth. Hmm. No, I love the rye too. It's a very different rye than I'm used to. And I can think of lots of lovely cocktails to put this in, which we will get to later in the show. Well, me coming from being a rye lover and launching the Wheel Horse Rye first, I did enjoy the fact that we have a bourbon with a 20 plus percent rye content. Mm-hmm. I like high rye bourbon mash bills just because it does keep that spice in there to offset the sweetness. Right. 
And I have to say, I've moved on to the rye. I've not encountered a rye with this oily and this round a mouthfeel. It's brilliant. Yep. It's very soft. Yeah, we get a lot of compliments on our rye, and Terry can probably mention some of the awards that it's won, but great reviews for sure. Hey, Terry, drop some award names. <laughs> well, I think to me, the best feedback I've gotten is just, you know, being involved in what's going on in social media and Instagram with the, the really active whiskey community. We've just received a ton of great response, especially on the rye. People just loving it. And I think also non-traditional rye drinkers have liked this rye because like you said, it's a little different. It has a sweetness to it. It has a roundness to it that really makes it very palatable. With a lot of people who don't like rye might not like, you know, the savoriness or the spice or the dryness that some rye can give you. This has uh, a lot of round and sweeter notes to balance that. Uh, I, it did get a 94 points recently at the New York International Spirits competition. It got a gold medal at the San Francisco Spirits competition. Great. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, do, it's doing all right. Awesome. Yeah. Those, are, when, those are good names to drop. Yeah. <laughs> One day I'm going to get back to the San Francisco competition and hang out there. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. so. I always am very interested in seeing what they say, especially since they're kind of they're kind of a big deal, I guess. Yeah, they are. That that one's definitely a big one. Yes, they are yeah. widely considered the gold standard or the double gold standard of yes. uh, spirits competitions. Mm -hmm. Jacob, I wanted to ask you. We were talking, and I think it was before we were on air, a little bit about the distilleries tours. I guess do you have tours, or is it just you were able to have the stores open? During non-COVID times, what do you offer for visitors? Yeah, you know, yeah, we are unfortunately our our tours are shut down at the moment due to COVID. But when we're open, we do have a gift shop and we do tours six days a week, and we're normally very busy with tours. Like I mentioned, kind of the gateway from the west, so we're normally the first stop or the last stop uh, for people on their tour route. And you know, Owensboro's the fourth largest city in Kentucky, so you know we've got to pretty good uh, downtown area and restaurants. So we get a lot of overnight guests mm -hmm. uh, that come to visit us here at the distillery. Cool. And how long about is the tour itself? It's about an hour, you know, okay. for about an hour. And it's kind of a more of a behind the scenes type tour. Uh, you know, you might get dirty or we may put you to work on the tour. Nice. So, <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. You may make a wheel horse of someone. <laughs> <laughs> nice. While we're on the topic of Owensboro, when I visited Owensboro for the first time about two years ago, when I first met these guys, or a year and a half ago, even, and I had been to Kentucky several times, I had always gone to Louisville, had always gone to Bardstown and, you know, that area. And Owensboro definitely, you know, for people who don't know Kentucky, you know, flies a bit under the radar. And as does this distillery, I think, as Jacob said, it was shut down for you know, almost three decades, and uh, which is not uncommon. You know, a lot of right. a lot of distilleries shut down during the '90s and early 2000s because the bourbon industry was not doing too well. But I think it's a a place and a distillery that, if you're a whiskey fan, you should start to get on your radar because I think it's an important part of the Kentucky map and history. You know, going back to the 1890s. So I'm really excited to see Owensboro and Green River come back to the, the light of the whiskey conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Owensboro, Davis County, this area, I had over 20 distilleries. Uh, we're a river town mm -hmm. just down from Louisville. And, you know, it was Louisville and, and us. And uh, it's, it's really, 
Owensboro's kind of sat on the sidelines for, for all these years. And, you know, uh, they've been very supportive uh, with having another a big distillery back open to be a part of that in Kentucky. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's very cool. Yeah. And I, I love the whole story behind Green River. I mean, it opened in 1885. Who was it? John McCullough or Jim McCullough? Yeah, John McCullough. Mm-hmm. John McCullough. Yeah. Founded the distillery in 1885. Again, this Kentucky distilling permit number 10. There was a fire sometime before Prohibition that destroyed much of the property and improvements thereupon reopened, but then Prohibition pushed it right back down again, and you discovered this property. Uh, I think it's just, I mean, all stories, you know, there's something beautiful about all origin stories, but I think this one stands out. Yeah, well, thank you for saying that. And, you know, the other thing, you know, we keep talking about the wheel horse, you know, name and, and meaning, and, you know, this place was in ruins when we got here. I mean, there was mm-hmm. water damage and roof damage, and, you know, we literally rebuilt this place brick by brick. Mm-hmm. And wow. Yeah, you know it's twenty six acres uh, here. So mm-hmm. that's what I was going to ask. That galloped away. How big is the property? <laughs> <laughs> twenty six acres, multiple warehouses and distillation and bottling, and you know it was some big names were done here a long time. Mm-hmm. Ezra Brooks was done here. Mellow Corn was done. Uh huh. Right. I'm just fortunate enough and, and really honored to be the, got to help bring it back to life, and mm-hmm. now I'm just kind of the caretaker. For a while. <laughs> I, I saw mellow corn. I read about mellow corn was distilled there as well, correct? Oh, was it? Correct. Yeah, I love oh. I love mellow corn. Mellow corn was one of the first whiskey tastings I ever went to. Really? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting first whiskey tasting. I was down at it Seven Grand in downtown. Yeah. When it, I went to no, Los Angeles. Yeah. I love the historic names that have, have come out of this distillery like Mellow Corn because and Ezra Brooks because these are names of bourbons that have been part of the, you know, bourbon conversation for a really long time. And it's uh, it just kind of is a testament to the, the history that was here and that they're bringing back and building on. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You distilled under the OZ Tyler name for four years before adopting Green River Distilling Company. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. So when we opened up, the parent company, as I mentioned, was Terracentia. And the, sort of the founder of the company, his name was O.Z. Tyler. So really, we just kind of mm-hmm. picked his name to name the company after him, sort of as a tribute. He had passed away right before we bought the facility. So it was kind of a tribute just to name it after Ty. His name was Ty. Orville was a Lotus Ty Tyler III. Mm-hmm. And we kind of had our eyes on the Green River trademark for a long time, really from the beginning. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sometimes it takes a while for these deals to work themselves out. It was kind of a no-brainer for us to get to be able to purchase back the original name and trademark of the distillery. Sure, sure. We'll launch a brand. We'll launch a Green River label and brand in 2021. So okay. nice. You know, there's been a lot of brands that have been resurrected. Oh, indeed. But not many get back to the original home where it all started. Yeah. Yeah. No, in fact, we have interviewed a number of resurrectors. Yeah. There's a number of them that have come out of Kentucky as of, you know, the last five years. Like I think you guys talked to chicken cock is, you know, another mm-hmm. old historic brand, but yeah, it's, it's a different situation because, you know, Green River does have that original building. The original. Is very story. Cool. Yeah. Again, a beautiful orange story. Shall we talk cocktails? 
I think so. Sounds good to me. All right. Well, the Center for Culinary Culture is one of the producers of this podcast, and one of its collections is the Cocktail Collection. So we always make a point of talking cocktails. We never ask, what's your favorite cocktail? Because why limit oneself to a cocktail? Rather, we talk about categories and go-tos. So both of you, whoever wants to start, talk to us about your go-to category. I'll jump in with a few of mine. You know, like I said, my original goal was to get a whiskey that was a go-to for both drinking neat and, you know, putting in cocktails. And I love Wheelhorse Rye in, you know, a handful of traditional whiskey cocktails. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's perfect in a rye Manhattan. Mm-hmm. What I tend to do with really any of the those bourbon or rye-based cocktails like that have sweet vermouth is I dial the sweet vermouth back a little bit because this rye does have a inherent sweetness to it that I think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, brings some of that sweetness that the sweet vermouth would. So I love it in a Manhattan. I think it makes a great old fashioned because again, same thing, you can dial back the the sugar component a little bit mm-hmm. and let the natural sh- sweetness of the, the whiskey kind of bring that to the surface. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was going to say the same thing. Usually I make my Manhattans with rye, but I usually make them as a perfect Manhattan with both the dry and the sweet. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking with this one, I would leave the sweet out because I think that the sweetness in your rye would be plenty. Also because I tend to switch the Angostura bitters for a cherry spice bitters. So I think I could do it with just the dry vermouth in that recipe. And I'm going to try it and I'll let you know how it is. Very good. Jacob? <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm pretty traditional. <laughs> first of all, if I'm going to have bourbon or rye, especially for the first time, it's generally with a couple ice cubes. But when mm-hmm. it comes to, to a cocktail, you know, it's my go-to is a Manhattan. Uh, or an old fashioned. Mm-hmm. Those are always uh, what I lean towards. Uh, typically, you know, rye in the Manhattans and, and bourbon in the uh, old fashioned. That's sort of mm-hmm. sure. My go tos. Sure. I'm looking forward to trying this rye in a Sazerac. Ooh, yes, that would be good. As well as a Boulevardier. I have done it in a Boulevardier recently quite a bit, actually. Okay. The Boulevardier has my go to cocktail for the last month, and this there you featuring go. Wheel Horse. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Again, I'm assuming you're not doing equal parts of the three. I'm not. You're dialing back the modifiers. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I personally normally dial back my sweetness modifier anyway, even if I wasn't using Wheel Horse, mm-hmm. but I dial it back even further with Wheel Horse. Okay. So you just right. get like a pipetting little straw and just do a little drop instead. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would like to try this rye in a whiskey flip Ooh. because I think this emulsified by a whole egg, on, uh, creating a nog is just, mm. <laughs> that would be brilliant, I think. Good for the season, for sure. Indeed. Yes. Yeah, there's that yes. too. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Gentlemen. It has been a pleasure. An absolute pleasure. Thank you for having us on. Oh. Thank you very much. It's great talking with everyone. And we look forward to talking to you again as your releases accumulate. Yes. Yeah, I'm very excited about Wheel Horse and where it's going, but I'm also excited about Green River and where they're going. And I say, oh, you know, absolutely, this is, this is a distillery to keep your eyes on, and I can't wait to see what they're doing with their own Green River brand. So, yeah, 2021, I guess, right, uh, Jacob? <laughs> yeah. Stay tuned. Big things coming. All right. To infinity and beyond. <laughs> Indeed. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Center for Culinary Culture, home to the Cocktail Collection and L.A. Food and Drink Museum, has a YouTube channel featuring a mix of how-to, lively talk, and culinary entertainment. Already streaming are Cocktails, The Grand Tour, Culinary Quickies, Music and Booze with Mo, 
and this podcast, Spirits of Whiskey. New shows coming soon include Complete Greek, telling the story of Greek food one dish at a time, and Spirits of Rum, a podcast featuring personalities from the wide world of cane spirits. Find us on YouTube, the Center for Culinary Culture, and subscribe now. The Center for Culinary Culture, telling the story of food and drink one taste at a time. Hey, Louise, it's good to have you on this week. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me again. Happy to be here. Of course, of course. So I just got some samples, which I sent over to you. We got some wheel horse bourbon and rye and see what you wanted to pair with uh, one of these beautiful expressions. Well, this week I went for the wheel horse bourbon. Okay. I really, I think it's because we're now in the holiday season and one of I feel like our best food offerings here in Los Angeles during this time of year are tamales. Mm. And oftentimes I just refer to this time of year, well, the the chunk of time between Thanksgiving and New Year as tamal season. So, (laughs) and so then like, so that's been on my mind. And then once I taste this bourbon, because it's, you know, you get so much of the corn flavor out of it. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you know... Why would I not want to drink this bourbon while eating tamales? Like, because the corn can play off the corn. So, yeah. And also, you know, one of the very traditional type of tamales that I end up purchasing, I make them, but I also, you know, they're sold all over LA. And I think they're just, you know, if you can find the woman at the supermarket who is selling them out of the trunk of her car, that's where you get them because she has right. made them at home. They will be the best, you know, and I, and there's a huge difference between the Mexican tamales and then tamales from various central central American nations that don't necessarily use corn, or if they do, they wrap them in banana leaves as, a, right. as opposed to corn husk. So, you know, there's so many different variations, but one of the ones that I really love is the coarse ground corn stuffed into a corn husk and filled with a pork that's cooked in a chili verde so it's just like a delicious porky you know slightly spicy not crazy kind of stew that gets stuffed into the masa wrapped and then steamed and so that because pork and bourbon are so great together as well for sure that's as much of a combination as milk and cookies so yeah I don't have I did save some of the whiskey after I tasted it because I'm like I'm totally doing this I have to go out and get some I do actually have some tamales in my freezer that one of my co-workers made but I don't have any of the pork and chili verde left so uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out and get some this week so that I can enjoy it that way I, I mean I know it'll be good so awesome very awesome. That's my that's my extremely LA pairing to go with this Kentucky bourbon. Well, that sounds awesome and I can't wait. I haven't actually tried them yet, so I can't wait to try it live on air with our guest. Then after I do that, I think I'll go and pick up some tamales at your house. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I've got a, I've got a handful of places I go, so you just let me know if, if you want in, and I will, I'll get you a dozen. I mean, because you kind of need to have enough in your freezer to heat up at any given moment. 
Right, right, of course. Really, you should have about, I would say, three dozen in your freezer because then you can get oh, different, different kinds. And it's like, you know, what What am I? I need a snack today. What should I have? I don't have a couple tamales. Like, pull them out of the fridge or the freezer. You're good to go. And it's a nice hearty, it's a nice hearty meal, but not like overly... No, it's like, I mean, I'll eat them. I actually, when they're in the freezer, I sometimes will take them out and then frozen just in a pan. I'll put a little bit of just a little bit of olive oil and then you take them out of the husk and you fry Mm. them in the pan. So you kind of brown Mm. one side and then you flip it over and then just put a little bit of water in there and put a lid on so that it steams it and gets the inside warm. And I'll have that with that. That with like an egg or two for breakfast and a bunch of salt. Yeah. That's like yum, yum. And eggs are my favorite. Like I can eat eggs for every meal, like all the time. There you go. I think uh, I will do that. Cool. And we'll talk to you again soon. All right. For show notes on today's podcast, please visit our website at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. We'll include links and supporting documents from today's Whiskey Chronicles, as well as tasting notes and recommendations from today's World of Wheezy. As always, you'll see upcoming topics, a guest roster, and links to past shows. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, salam. Slunchavon. You can become a sustaining supporter of Spirits of Whiskey by making a monthly donation. Just visit the Spirits of Whiskey page at anchor.fm. That's anchor.fm forward slash spirits dash of dash whiskey and click on the support button. And if you really like us, give us a five star rating and a review. Thank you. Spirits of Whiskey is produced by First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available via Anchor, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are heard.